broadcasting from the foam rocks on SETI Alpha 5. This is Politrex. The time directive, the Declaration of Human Rights, the United Federation of Planets, the United Nations, World War II, the Dominion Federation War, the Art of War, the Teachings of Sirach, Jesus Christ. Welcome everyone to Politrex, the show where we look at the socio-political happenings of today and in history through the episodes, movies, and philosophy of Star Trek. We're more task-oriented than control. My name is Barry DeFord, and with me is my fantastic co-host, the often imitated, never replicated Mr. Shashankavaru. How are things in your timeline, sir? Namaste, Homo sapiens. Timeline and pasts and presents have all converged into this moment. I have been waiting to do this episode for the longest time, and I'm glad we finally get to do it. And when you all hear it, you will see how nerdy I get. We're pretty nerdy here on the Star Trek podcast, but this was an extra nerdy one for me. So I'm pretty excited for people to listen to this. I'm also very relaxed because for the first time in a year or a little more than a year, I don't know why I never tried this, but I finally set up my podcast equipment to where I can talk to people from the from my couch with my dog just laying down next to me. So I feel like it's a very relaxed, very casual setup. That works kind of nice. Speaking of nerdy, the other day I was sitting on the balcony or on, on the, I guess, I don't know, patio at my mom's house. And she turned to me and she's like, do you consider yourself very nerdy, Barry? And I'm like... I host a Star Trek podcast that talks about (laughs) politics. If I said no, that would be the stupidest thing I've ever said in my life. Yes, I am very nerdy. Also, I do like the setup you've got there. Um, Folks, just so you're aware, I'm looking at several of, or two of of Shashank's uh, awesome movie posters. He's turned the camera over to see the dog a few times. Um, I often find you have to be as comfortable as possible when you're podcasting. I have surrounded myself with, uh, man... A lot of Star Trek stuff. I've got stuff from fan sets around. I've got tons of Eagle Moss uh, collectibles. I've got Star Trek cats. I've got pictures. I've got a diploma that was signed by George Takei, or a degree, I guess, a Starfleet degree. I've got Locutus of Borg. And then there's a giant Enterprise cutaway behind me. So yeah, no, if you ever decide to be uh, be a podcaster, just make the area as comfortable as possible, and uh, you'll feel better about yourself, I, I, I assure you. If you're ever lucky enough to be on a podcast with DeFord, you should make sure to ask him to give you a quick video tour because I get them every now and then, and it's a beautiful room. There is so much Trek around there. I think I spend money on Trek stuff, and then I look at his room and I go, no, no, I'm, I really haven't spent a whole lot of money on Star Trek stuff. Which is, again, also sort of ironic, given given my political affiliations, but uh, I'm beset by my contradictions. If you want to tell me more about my contradictions, you can always find <laughs> us on the uh, tricordertransmissions.com. There's tons of episodes there, tons of wonderful uh, shows you can watch. I always like to list them out because I'm always really proud of them all. We've got Sober Trek, Weekly Trek, The Original Mission, Shore Leave, Disco Trek, Trek Profiles, Trek Rank, Drawing Trek, Reading Trek. We've even got supplemental logs. You've got so much going on there that just if you uh, pass it up, um, I don't know what you're doing. You can always check us out there. And if you're even so more inclined, you can always support us on Patreon. Any uh, any of your extra dollars can go to help us, making sure that we keep some quality podcast heading your way. How can they find us on the social media, Shashank? Well, first off, 
that segue is what we call in the podcast business a good segue. So way to go. And uh, good job on mentioning all those uh, podcasts on our network. If if you guys don't get enough of the voice of the Spice King of Star Trek, a.k.a. me, I'll also be part of a podcast coming up in the future called Faraday, which is a tabletop role-playing game set in the world of Star Trek, and it's going to be a blast. And people can find us on at Polytrex on Twitter. That's P-O-L-I-T-R-E-K-S. It's the same thing on Facebook. You can also leave us a voice message on the Tricorder Transmissions website. I am not editing out either of our, our breakups there because that was amazing. You just referred to yourself as the Spice King of Star Trek. <laughs> Which it's the absolute truth. Well, I... I can't, I can't deny it. You, uh, you bring the spice every time. Oh my goodness! I think it's time. I think it's time we go to the news before this uh, falls apart any further. So, with that, let's go on to the news. Welcome back to the news. I hope you like that musical interlude. I'll be making some more delightful sounds in the near future. I get these little bugs of making noise with uh, with the uh, music software I have, and you folks have to be subjected to it. So, unfortunately, we've got a uh, um, not the best of news again for you folks, but uh, I suppose sometimes this is what happens in the world. So, first one is a bit of a local local deal on my end. Uh, I live in the province of Alberta, and there was just recently an election where a considerably right-wing party has uh, taken power uh, from a somewhat social democratic party in the past. And uh, unfortunately, the the whole election cycle, if you look into it, if you decide to go on some of the news agencies that are affiliated out of my province, so Global News or CBC or CTV, um, you're going to find that there was a fair bit of mudslinging, a fair bit of scandals, especially on the end of the conservative side of things. They uh, they definitely uh, were caught up in a number of different scandals in the, uh, the New Democrat Party, which is the social democratic party that was in power, um, were definitely really trying to highlight that. And unfortunately, I feel very much like they ended up getting caught in a uh, sort of chasing, chasing the uh, chasing the center, I guess you could say, in the sense that uh, Jason Kenney, the leader of the uh, United Conservative Party, as they're called, was, you know, saying what he wanted to do for the province. And then Rachel Notley, the leader of the New Democrats, and at the time, current premier, um, was basically just repeating what he had to say and then saying that it was stupid. But she did sort of forget to mention the things that she was going to do in her party. And so I do feel like this was kind of like the Trump election, but uh, in, in microcosm, um, where you had um, a couple lunatic blowups coming from some of the candidates within the UCP party. You had some pretty serious scandals that dealt with, uh, you know, white supremacy, misogyny, homophobia. A couple of the things within the UCP platform is to get rid of the uh, GSAs or the gay straight alliances within schools so that uh, kids no longer can affiliate that way in the sense of um, there wouldn't be any funding or support for it. And if uh, they decided to start a GSA, all parents would have to know immediately, which can actually jeopardize um, LGBTQ students, especially if their parents aren't supportive. So uh, there was that. Uh, there's also uh, the concept of rolling back the minimum wage, um, cutting a lot of essential services like healthcare and education. But unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on what side of the uh, political spectrum you find yourself on, the Conservatives won a resounding win with 70% of the vote 
uh, sorry, not 70% of the vote. Uh, they won a resounding win. Uh, 70% of eligible voters voted, and uh, it is a UCP majority with about 65 seats, and then about uh, 35 for the New Democrats and nothing else for any others. So I don't know. The... Um, you know, obviously the American connection is, is there was a lot of uh, bozo eruptions, as we like to call it, and a lot of scandal and a lot of, uh, I don't know, I really think that the UCP did a pretty poor campaign, um, just due to all of that, and yet they still won. And I think that Donald Trump did a pretty poor campaign and ended up winning anyway, too. So I think that says a lot about the populace, and um, how seeing things kind of just more in the sense of economy versus social issues is kind of the main issue that we're at right now. Alberta is an oil-producing province, and that's all the election was about, was about a pipeline. So kind of unfortunate. So Shashank, that's a lot of information. I don't know if you have any sort of immediate responses to that. Well, I do. It's it's interesting to look at that, especially with another election just happening in Ukraine. I don't know if you've heard of this yet. I know you've been trying to avoid the news for uh, and I quote, fear of being depressed, which I understand. Uh, <laughs> and just recently, I want to say a few hours ago, they declared that a comedian named Volodymyr Zelensky, who has zero political experience, won the Ukraine election by a landslide. So we are no longer traversing the edge of the neutral zone, doing our best to stay safe in our enterprise, we are deep into the mirrored universe. The fact that this election in Alberta is not a surprise, or at least not as much of a surprise as it would have been pre-November 2016, is both jarring and also very affirming of the need for resistance and the need for action it's it's important. I'm, I'm sorry for straying off our franchise and quoting Neil Gaiman, but he once said, the beautiful thing about stories is not because they tell you that dragons exist, but because they tell you that dragons can be slayed. And Star Trek is such a beautiful pantheon of stories. And above all, it tells you that being good matters and being good is is what is important. And it's okay if you're if you're losing for now. If you feel like you've ended up on the losing side because the goal as Kirk and Picard and Cisco and Archer and Janeway and Pike and just all the beautiful, inspiring, hopeful captains that you can think of tell you, even though we feel like at, at the moment we are losing, it's that's it's not game over by any means. If anything, it's, it's uh, your push to be loud, be active in the community and not shy away from politics as much. And I'm glad we do a podcast about politics because I think one of the things we at least aspire to do is try to make politics less intimidating to people. And it doesn't help that news keeps breaking about the bad guys, quote unquote, winning, but that's all for now. And if you also should remember that we are not even a year past when the house here won by a crazy majority in the United States. So dragons can be slayed. And if there's anything that we can take away from Star Trek in in reference to this, it's that, you know, it feels like we're losing for now, but there is a light at at the end of that horizon. I'm hopeful for that. Yeah. And uh, I'm going to segue us into the next news bit. But I will say that uh, there uh, was a very important uh, social philosopher in the late 1800s who said that uh, when something bad like this happens first, it's a tragedy. And if it happens again, it's a farce. 
And um, of course, I'm quoting Karl Marx there. And uh, if you don't like that, well, whatever. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think, you know, when we look at grit and determination, I think if you look at uh, all of the different captains, they had that diplomacy. And unfortunately, I don't think diplomacy is working as well as it used to. And I think in this respect, what we need to do is we need to be clear with our motives, we need to be clear with what we're trying to do. And we need to do those things when we get the chance. So I really found that the the NDP party being social democratic, quote unquote, had four years to really make some changes. And the only thing they did was raise the minimum wage. Everything else can be repealed that a, a lot of the other policies that they did are going to get repealed in the coming weeks here. So I do I do agree with you. There is a light at the end of the tunnel, but it does come with that uh, courage of our conviction, something that I think every Starfleet captain we've seen had. And uh, to be clear and to be precise and to be decisive is the other really piece of all this. Speaking of tragedy, but in a much more material and real sense, um, Sri Lanka is currently under curfew after being shook by a awful terror attack that has killed approximately 200 individuals um, while they were in mass or at a, at their hotels during the Easter holiday here. Um, Shashank, you, see, you, you say you know a little more of the info. Maybe you could uh, kind of get us up to speed on what's, what's happening on the ground there right now. Sure. So at 8.45 a.m. on Sunday, 21st April, which is when we are recording, uh, bombs tore apart three churches, one in Colombo, which is the capital, and two in Negombo and Batikaloya. A little bit about Sri Lanka. It's one of the few Christian-majority nations in South Asia. And it, the population it, and very much the, the religious bent and the more or less the, the politics of it revolve around uh, the, the religion or at least a part of it. And so far, it, over 200 people have been reported killed and 450 others have been wounded. And the defense minister, Ruan Vijavardene, said that these are coordinated blasts that are described by religious extremists. Now, there is a little more info about one of the attackers, apparently in the hotels, one of the hotels that were uh, bombed. This guy sat or rather stood in line at a breakfast buffet. And while people were picking up their food to put it in their plate, he detonated his bomb that was strapped to his back. So there is there is so much to unpack. But at, at this point, we don't have all the facts. We don't. There hasn't been a claim yet for what has been happening. But apparently 13 suspects have been apprehended. And... That's that's where we are. Uh, that's where things stand as of now. As a nation, uh, Sri Lanka has been rocked by civil war for, for almost 25 years. From 1983 to 2009, there was a insurgency that was taking place in the north of the country. Um, the Sinhalese uh, Tamils, who I believe are Buddhist, is that correct, Shashank? I think so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, some of them also sort of took uh, revolutionary, somewhat leftist philosophies as well and uh, conducted a 25-year insurgency. A civil war took place in, in that country. There was a short ceasefire in 2002, which broke down, and then there was basically military conquest after that, and the Tamils um, called it in uh, in 2009. So Sri Lanka has only been at peace with itself for 10 years. And for something like this to happen, I mean, anywhere in the world is always a tragedy, but... Uh, my heart goes out to all of the people affected. And um, 
definitely uh, the idea that that on social media there's already a lot of people saying, "Oh, well, I know what happened here, and I know what happened there." I think we we need to let this this play out um, because you know if we if we if we succumb to to the the feverish um, blame game, then that's going to be that's going to add fuel to the fire in a lot of cases. You know, we've had a lot of attacks by lone gunmen, um, mostly in that case of a Caucasian persuasion. Um, we've also had attacks by Muslim extremists in the past, but we've also had attacks by political groups, other religious groups, uh, and whatnot. I think right now, more than anything, more than thoughts and prayers, if, if you do have uh, extra money or anything like that rolling around, um, Best, best to leave Notre Dame to itself. It'll be fine. Maybe, maybe donate to the Red Cross uh, because they'll be having to do quite a bit of work over there right now. And uh, I would hate to see people unduly suffer past this point. My, uh, my dearest sympathies go out to those folks. And I will be. Uh, my next paycheck is coming along, and I think I'm going to have to send some some money their way to try to to try to help in any way I can. It's unfortunately relevant, especially to this episode, because we are going to talk about in the main topic about a lone gunman or uh, extreme terrorists, John Harrison, a.k.a. Khan. And we talk a lot about ideology and what happened there. But it's just, it's important to remember that we did take Khan down uh, at great cost. Yes, but that did happen. And I know things feel hopeless and it's just, that's just where we are. When, when all this happens, I can't help but go back to Star Trek and think about the sheer amount of courage and light that those people must have had inside them to keep traveling across space and run into all the issues that they run into. And yet the fact that they keep their chin up, none of us have to be in Star Trek or Safari to understand that tragedy takes us all down. But we have Star Trek. We have things like... Star Trek and science fiction and things that we love that lift us up. And I think it's important to lean on those things. And it's okay to talk to people about how you're feeling. It. I am very, very blessed that I have a friend across the border who will talk to me and who will reach out to me and who will do the sweetest things in the world. And I, I hope all of you are as lucky as I am to have friends and family that can help you through times like this. It's, it's definitely difficult. And I, you can always reach out to either of us personally or on Twitter, however, and we are, we are more than willing to help if, if you feel like these things are taking you down. Like I said, it's difficult and it's unfortunately something that keeps happening again and again and again, but we're here and we will be here for you. I think it's time we, we segue into something uh, perhaps a bit uh, a bit upbeat to, to end this off, a, a bit of a double whammy. So first of all, Discovery has uh, finished its second season. I have not seen the last episode yet, much to the chagrin of my illustrious co-host. But uh, just maybe just some, some final thoughts on the entire uh, season, um, maybe sort of spoiler light, uh, especially for that last episode for yours truly and for anyone else who's uh, also behind the eight ball like me um shashank what do you think season two just some some quick thoughts a great season all around pike is awesome spock was great and really everything i know you haven't seen the season finale yet but it's some of the best vfx i've ever seen in trek i'll leave it at that and 
Uh, I have no complaints about the season. There wasn't a glaring big problem that I had in any way. Uh, and just because I'm a history nut, maybe I prefer, um, I'm sure t- things will change with time. But f- right now, because I love the Mirror Universe so much in season one, I just prefer it a little bit more than I do season two. But that doesn't take anything away from season two. It was a blast. And I can't wait to see season three. Yeah, I would echo a lot of that. If you want to hear me wax lyrical about the VFX department um i did a two on uh discovering trek two episodes on discovering trek where i go on and on and on about the vfx i really really enjoyed just the eye candy but uh i do have to say like outside of that sonequa martin green is a force of nature at this point i think she's a category five actor and i am so incredibly impressed with the the team that has been built it really does feel like a star trek crew they really do feel like an actual crew like a group of people who would like hang out beyond and you you do notice that right you see their you see how close they are as 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 people and so I always really like the idea of if you can tell the cast is having fun, then I enjoy it too. And and that's that's sort of where I'll leave it at, at that. But uh, one other really important thing that uh, makes me feel just like we're actually doing something that has real meaning potentially is uh, when we do hear from you. And uh, we thought we would share uh, a very, very lovely uh, letter. And uh, Shashank, you've got it up, so I'll let you uh, let you do the honors. Yeah, we the the listener who sent us this letter asked us not to reveal their name, so I will respect that. But it's a very sweet message that we got. Uh, they said, I had a chance to listen to the Voyage Home slash Environmental podcast, and it was fantastic. I'm so glad that you're doing this podcast because it is very necessary in these times. Now I'm going to have to get caught up on the back catalog. Thanks again for the hard work. Keep it up. That was such a sweet, sweet message from that listener. And we we keep saying, if you if you write us something, we'll definitely read it out on the show. I, I don't care how embarrassing it is. At the beginning of this episode, I called myself the Spice King of Star Trek. So it can only go uphill. Any message you send can only be better than that. But that was very kind of the listener. We, we wouldn't be here without you. We appreciate your support and your positive messages. And we can't wait to keep doing 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 more of these. Full agreement. Well, sir, I think with that, we should uh, get on to our main topic. What do you say? Let's do it. Hit it. Welcome back, everyone, to the main topic for today's episode. If you have noticed with the title, you'll see that we've gone back to our The Polytrex Off series, in which we break down some of the more significant, for better or for worse, movies and episodes in the universe of Star Trek. Today is a doozy, uh, to say the least. Uh, all the all my Trek friends know me know I am an unabashed supporter of this movie. It's my second favorite Star Trek movie it's my favorite Kelvin Timeline movie. I have a bit of romanticism with it uh, when it comes to the actual movie itself uh, because of the experience that I had when I saw it and what it means to me. I'll talk about all that here in a little bit, but uh, let me jump in with our co-host Barry, who might have a more of a non-colored lens perspective on this movie. So Barry, tell us what do you think about this movie overall? What do you think of Into Darkness? 
Well, I think Into Darkness is a really ambitious movie. I think it tried to do an incredible amount of things in just that kind of usual two-hour-ish time frame of a movie. So I think it does kind of suffer a bit from trying to add a ton of stuff into one singular movie. And you see that a lot with with Star Trek movies, right? Um, I think Insurrection is another perfect example of a movie that should have been several, or, you know, it could have been a nice series or something. So I think that what gets covered and what gets discussed and explored in Into Darkness is super important and kind of prescient for basically every element of our current modern society. But I do think that they ended up getting a little bit bogged down in trying to fill too much in such a short time frame. Where would you rank it in your uh, Trek movie ranks? Is it closer to the lower rung or the upper rung? Oh, it's in the upper rung. I would say uh, of the Kelvin timeline films, it it does unfortunately fall down to three for me. But that doesn't mean that I hate it or anything like that. Like 2009 was kind of what reinvigorated my Trek journey. And uh, Beyond really was just so much fun um, when when I watched it. So... I guess like, you know, of the of the Kelvin timeline. I uh, here I am listen to me. I'm I'm like I'm like trying to like dig up right now. Um but yeah, I mean it's it's definitely in like my top 8, I would say. That's good. Top 8 is good. I'll take top 8. Uh, and and we know people famously in the community are not huge fans of this movie for the John Harrison Khan reveal and I can understand that, I guess, but if there is anything we can do with this episode, it's to maybe let you see beyond that that one thing that justifiably bugs everyone and actually talk about some of the deeper themes politically, culturally, philosophically in this movie that are begging for a re-look from your perspective. And maybe through this episode, you can find reasons to look past that John Harrison can't reveal and, you know, turn this into one of your more favorable Trek movies. Even if that does not happen, you'll see two people trying to foolishly argue about it. So there's that. You'll get a kick out of that. <laughs> yeah. And I think I think if we can just sort of lay out where we're going to go with this, um, I'll talk about some of the things I'm going to bring up as we get into this conversation and you you bring up a few things. And I think with that kind of trail of rice, uh, our, our dear and lovely listeners can uh, can maybe take another look at this because I think every Trek movie, every Trek episode has its commentary, has its political message has things that that will make you want to to look deeper into yourself, into your society, into contemporary politics, or even into historical politics. So the things I really want to talk about is the concept of terrorism, quote unquote, uh, its destabilizing effects, how leadership responds to it as well, and um, sort of the bigger question of how far are we get willing to go to pursue power, hegemony, and can we let that make us end up straying from either real or perceived values. So that that's kind of where I'm going to go with it. What about you, Shashank? One big parallel to me with this movie is the Iraq war. I, I think there are a lot of similarities and a lot of things that the movie is trying to talk about when it comes to the Iraq war and the events that led up to it and the events that happened after it. And I also want to talk about Marcus, the character. I have, I've, I've seen enough politicians now to know there is a Dick Cheney type when it comes to Admiral Marcus in my head anyway. And Section 31 is a whole own discussion topic in itself. We've talked about that many times here, but there are some aspects of Section 31 here that are kind of new and you learn a little more about it, which I think is pretty cool about the movie. Uh, And I want to talk about the Frankenstein's monster aspects of John Harrison, a.k.a. Khan, 
and if there is any way to actually give this character a second chance and maybe not immediately dismiss him as Khan light or wannabe Khan. But let, let's get into it, man. I really wanted to talk to you about some of the scenes of this movie. We'll, we'll hopefully do a mini walkthrough about some of the important scenes. You know, this movie to me really talks about the the railroad crisis, if you will, the one where it's if there are 20 children died on one side of a railroad track and there are 40 adults tried on another side of the railroad track and a train is coming and you get to pull the lever and redirect the train to one of them, which one would you do it to? There are a lot of those kinds of decisions in this movie. At the very beginning on Nebu, uh, Enterprise has to decide whether they want to be seen by this planet that, according to Pike, is has barely invented the wheel and saved their friend, or do they let Spock die? So let me ask you, what would you do if you were Enterprise? Would you would you save Spock, or would you not violate the Prime Directive? Oh, I think a lot of the a lot of this harkens to that idea of the Prime Directive. And if we were to relate that now, it would be something along the lines of, uh, like, say, the the Yanomamo in Brazil or the Sentinelese on the Andaman Islands. What what do we owe them, and and what can we be okay with? I think is is a big question. And of course, there was that missionary who just uh, recently landed on North Sentinel Island and was promptly killed by the residents, and his body basically is now just sort of rotting on the beach. And I think the problem there is is his contact with them now does expose them to countless bacteriums, phages, viruses, you name it. So um, <clears throat> that could do some real damage to the people, uh, the Sentinelese who live on uh, on North Sentinel Island. So I would say in that respect, if you're there, if you are, you know, doing your research kind of like, like they did with the Sona in the Prime Universe or here on Nibiru, I would say more than anything, you really need to know what you're doing. And so they see this existential threat hitting the uh, the people of this planet that could, could ruin them, sort of like a Krakatoa-esque event that could uh, really wipe them out pretty bad. And so they, they have to make these sorts of decisions. I would say, for the most part, if your rules are non-contact to those who should not be contacted, then unfortunately, that is sort of the paradox you're under of maybe you should not act. Maybe you should let nature happen and take its course. And that seems cold and callous, but at the same time, if you are willing to protect them, then to some degree, I think you owe them some form of contact, some form of transparency and accountability, because I think subterfuge is probably one of the biggest things that threatens a lot of people in modern day society, right? The the uncontacted tribes and peoples, or low contact tribes and peoples, they need to know we're there. They need to know we exist, and, and they deserve to know those things. And they deserve to be assisted, because unfortunately, at this point, any of the challenges they faced are probably if not caused directly, indirectly affected by our actions in and around the planet, and I would say larger in the, the universe itself, or the galaxy itself in this case. I don't think the people of Nibiru are completely, completely isolated, even in the moment where, um, before before they had the existential threat of the volcano going off. So what about you, Shashank? Would you detonate the device, or would you, uh, would you hang on and just let nature take its course? So if you look at the Prime Directive, it says... You know, there should be no direct interference in the making, in the happenings or the regulations or the structure of a civilization. I would actually go ahead and detonate it and then make the argument that there isn't really a civilization there as much as there is 
a group of people discovering their own species. It's not like I have landed in the, the Crusades and I'm trying to run the DeLorean. You know, it's like me landing when people were drawing in caves and hundreds of thousands of years ago when humanity just started its its first steps. And if you think about it, toward the end of that entire scene, we actually see those early men on the planet draw uh, a drawing of the Enterprise. And I suspect thousands of years from then, that's all that will ever be. It'll just be drawings or some kinds of expressions that that are of people's imaginations when until they actually get to where they are warp capability or space discovery capability ready that civilization will will just think oh these are people you know who had a really creative imagination so i i would argue that there really isn't a huge amount of harm and the fact that they actually risk their lives to do something good i would say the in the many violations of the prime directive across the shows this is one i would be more forgiving of if i was spike i would fight for kirk just like he did and if i was kirk and spock you know i would do it but that's just you know everybody has their own their own take on it let me ask you another question so this leads us into once the scene is over spock is picked up and they head back into their uh, the fleet hq where you know i the one of the things that i don't know if people have a problem with it but it's just an interesting relationship we get to see some more of the pike kirk relationship and that's another part of this movie that has some threads of family and we see a lot of allusions or discussions about family for kirk pike is his father right would you agree at least in this movie absolutely yeah no pike is definitely the father figure of this entire arc and if you intersperse that with what's going on with the reveal of john harrison and an actual father trying to save his daughter with the ring bomb in the library that we later learn is the headquarters of section 31 what would you do there would you do that to save your daughter well i think i think just to just to kind of respond and maybe riff a little on on the things you've said so far i think this all brings up that idea of family and the concept of intervention and how we intervene in other people's lives to benefit themselves or benefit ourselves or maintain or disrupt a hierarchy or hegemony so uh, just really quickly touching on Nibiru you're right i mean what they do is really just damage control they're just trying to save a group of people who ultimately the brief amount of contact in 500 years isn't going to have that much of a of an impact they might start a religion kind of like with the red angel in the current discovery series but ultimately yeah you're right there isn't going to be a, a heck of a lot in terms of of the the family of the federation i mean it just seems like section 31 is kind of that heavy-handed or ham-fisted kind of hiding in the shadows group of people who are stirring up a lot of this and if it wasn't for section 31's meddling i don't think we would have the crisis of john harrison slash con that ultimately gets created i i squarely put blame on the cia of the united federation of planets to do these sorts of things so when we get into the you know the idea that would i go and and, and sacrifice myself to save um, my child i mean parents are biologically programmed to do anything for their children so that's a bit of a no-brainer of course i would but um i think i think if you really think about what what are the conditions that put john harrison and the father and everyone in the position they're in well it comes down to who's in charge 
And what exactly is everyone in this interconnected community doing? And I would say that um, this whole story is basically the overstretching and the oversimplification of a crisis set out by Section 31 themselves. So I don't know if that answered your question or not. No, no, you did. You did, you did answer that question. And I appreciate you jumping in and sharing some more points about the the scenes that happen. Again, something interesting happens here. The, the explosion happens and then we find out that it wasn't the explosion that was the real intent, which I thought was pretty good. It was the, the mandated council meeting that John Harrison shows up to. He's kind of a bane of, of the story, right? I mean, it it doesn't matter who he is. And I think yeah. that really does come, kind of come forward. And a lot of people on Twitter have even said, you know, like, this might not actually even be con. This could just be John Harrison saying he's con because, like Bane says, it doesn't matter who we are. What matters is our plan. And, yeah, I mean, this is sort of in that phase of every villain is like a super, I've planned for the plan, for the plan, for the plan. I mean, you see that in Skyfall. Obviously, it gets its big jump in the dark night and then the dark night rises so this definitely follows a similar tack i guess and and yeah i mean it is it's this this is a thing that needs to happen so something else can happen and again you i mean you see that in in real life right you see that uh, especially in coups that have happened in and around the world that um, the villainous elements will do one thing to ultimately set the set the tone for the next thing and i would argue that that section 31 is doing that as well i mean they are they are not just reacting to John Harrison's attacks, they are also planning on planning on planning, right? The the whole incident of the Narada coming through the wormhole, or the, the black hole, sorry, changes the tone, changes the way the Federation reacts to threat, right? And it, it really does remind me of sort of like a Wolf 359 moment, where you also see the Federation change its tack and change its tone. And it does it through propaganda, it does it through trying to change the psychology of everything. And so, yeah, an attack on the center, the core, right? And, and taking the lives of, of several prominent members of the United Federation of Planets is meant to destabilize, but it's not necessarily like Section 31, you know, Admiral Marcus is that upset about that. I mean, just like Pearl Harbor and September 11th, I am not a conspiracy theorist on either of those events, but definitely it was capitalized on and definitely um, they had a horse in the race on getting their interests pushed forward after the event itself. No, I fully agree. Those are those are great points. And the more I think about it, it kind of would have made everybody's lives easier if Marcus would have just said, "These are this is something that we made. And this guy out there is not just any other lone gunman, which I I, I confess is, is difficult to deal with knowing what we know now about lone gunmen and that, that reality. Just that scene is tough to watch. Uh, but it's, it's, it's certainly... It certainly drives forward the point that the shootout is not the shootout or the killing is not the killing. Uh, if, you, if you think about what happened in New Zealand recently or the synagogue in Pittsburgh or just so many that there is there's just no point in going into them, except it's important to remember that they all have a specific vendetta. They have an agenda and the killers have a way to get that out and say, do this and this is why I'm doing it. 
so these people can be hurt or these people can be eliminated. Yeah, I think that right there you said it. If Admiral Marcus was actually accountable to his leadership, he would have come clean, said that he was trying to create a human weapon out of these advanced people, and stepped down for excess and abuse of power. But instead, he doubles down gets extra secretive, starts basically trying to eliminate those who are against his ultimate plan of being the main dominant force within the galaxy, and completely ignoring and and pushing aside the fact that the conditions that he's creating is actually what is responsible for these lone gunmen and, and other kinds of attacks. And, and yeah, we can directly see that. You think the, the populist rhetoric that is taking place in our country, um, countries, I guess, and, and around the world isn't having an effect on the individuals. I mean, you see these right-wing radicalizations taking place, and they are in line with a lot of the talking points of the leaders who are trying to score points to get votes. And I think, again, you can see that in Admiral Marcus's unaccountability and inability or unwillingness to take responsibility for the things he's responsible for. And ultimately, I mean, this almost costs him his daughter. It almost costs the internal structure of the United Federation of Planets. So again, though I've been critical of the movie in terms of kind of the way it was parsed out, I think it asks some very, very important questions. And we can draw a lot of connections to the here and now. I also think the larger consequences, not just of losing his daughter and the things that he would lose, not only does he not tell people who John Harrison is, he risks the life of the lives of an entire ship, the Enterprise, by saying, hey, go get them. And risk is the wrong word. He actually plans to kill them all just to get this one guy so he can stop something that he started. It's a perversion of the needs of the many outweighing the needs of the few, right? Yeah, it's, it's opposite in this movie. It takes a fascistic stance in this one because Admiral Marcus thinks he is doing what is in the best interests of the many. But in that sense, his only idea is this quote-unquote thought of security and his idea of the good defense is a good offense and look where it gets him it's almost as if it's the needs of the powerless are outweighed by the needs of the powerful in this movie especially when even even the name of a ship is uss vengeance come on <laughs> and i would reverse it i would reverse it and say that the needs of the powerful are out need, outweighing the needs of the powerless right? right i just said that but i i i messed up the I put the subject and the predicate. There you go. Grammar nerds. Uh, but, Grammar time. Yeah. Uh, and it, it's very interesting, mainly because the character at the beginning, the character is a Starfleet character through and through. And it kind of makes you wonder where Starfleet is at this point or how much is left to go when a, when a guy like that can get to that level in Starfleet and do the things that he is doing. If I didn't know better, I would say the, move, the villain in this movie is Starfleet. We know it's Section 31, but in a lot of ways, Starfleet, for allowing someone like that to get to the power that he has, Starfleet is the villain in this movie. And by actually violating the Prime Directive and by not listening to Starfleet, the hero succeeds. And it's a, and yet people just love to hate on this movie without thinking about all the cool things that happen, especially like this one I talked about. But so uh, speaking of which, now after all that happens... Kirk gets the go-ahead to go and see John Harrison and they're on the ship and they're about to leave and Carol Wallace shows up or who we later learn is Carol Marcus. What did you think of this character? I 
well, this is why the movie doesn't pass the Bechdel test. Uh, <laughs> they they could have done a lot more with her. They over-sexualize her, in my opinion. The whole no peeking scene completely unnecessary. really bother me. And, I mean, it, sure, it's, you know, kind of a callback to TOS and the, the space babes and all that sort of but stuff. But they got that, right? At the beginning of the movie, <laughs> when we see Kirk, he's in bed with two women. He's clearly having a threesome and is in the afterglow of that threesome. And, I mean, I thought that would be enough, but then they had to show the Carol in the bikini. I mean, I guess that's the thing is, like, I think I think that, that her as a character has a lot of nutritional value to the story and it, the, the advancement of the story. I mean, the reveal, you know, of the father-daughter father relationship, yeah. again, ties in this whole family thing that you're talking about. I, I, do, I do think there's a lot of value in her character. It's just she really gets bogged down in in trying to tell more than time allows and allots for, right? She can be a sexual character. That's perfectly fine. Every character will have a bit of their sexuality that exists. It's just they sort of shoehorn it in or like, I don't know, like just some some gratuitous moments just kind of parachute their way into the movie. And you're kind of like, oh, okay. And it's almost like they're ticking off boxes. They're like, okay, we've shown her midriff so we can move on now. But no, I, I, I think that her, her grappling with the idea that, that this is her father and, and, and stuff like that, I think, is, is an amazing bit of storytelling. I just wish they would have focused on that a little more. It's certainly, that's the one scene that I will not defend myself when, when I get into debates with people about Into Darkness. And it's very interesting that Disney and Lucasfilm saw this movie and said, oh, J.J. Abrams, that's the guy from Star Wars. Let's do it. They did a lot better with um, Daisy Ridley's character in, in Star Wars, for sure. They, they, they definitely learned, learned their lesson. The, the same applies for uh, Kelvin Trek 1, or Star Trek, as people call it. You know, the same thing happens in there. There is another bikini wearing, or just girl in her underwear that... Kirk is about to bed and then the whole Ahura thing happens when they hear about the the, the transmission from Nero. So just those were, those were a couple of things that I was not on board with. I know there are people who watch stuff and it's supposed to be an all-rounded movie. The demographic that they're trying to get will get a kick out of it. I get all of that. But, you know, just because Alice Eve, she's a very attractive woman, uh, completely agree on, on all counts, but maybe not do that in a Star Trek movie. <laughs> And I, I like that because they didn't do any of that in Beyond, at least that I can think of. No, but I mean, there was still there was still intrigue and, and some love interest and stuff like that. But yeah, I mean, that that movie stands a lot more on its own, I think, for its storytelling. And I think maybe because they didn't need to shoehorn in a love story, that, that the movie actually is a little more successful, I guess is the best way to put it. And, I w- and I'm not trying to eschew love stories in, in, in movies or TV shows or in Star Trek. Oh, yeah. City on the Edge of Forever is still one of the best love stories. Yeah. I, I would say that uh, that Jedzia Dax Worf love story is also one that's very inspiring. So it's not like Star Trek can't do really good love stories. And I mean, I, I think that they're they're doing that again right now with uh, Ash Burnham and uh, Culber and Stamets. So yeah. What's more interesting is the character is actually a really good foil because. When, when we do let to get her shine, she has all this intelligence and the way she disarms that torpedo, uh, she felt like a really good fit for the crew. I'm sure when they were making the movie, Alice Eve had at least signed on for another movie or they were they had plans for ways to get her back in there. But 
you know, things happen. And moving on, we'll get to the actual theme stuff, but I just wanted to talk to you about a couple more things in the movie itself. We'll talk about John Harrison in length, but why is Kronos abandoned in this movie? Isn't Kronos supposed to be full of hustle bustle and uh, full of civilized glory and uh, it's the home world of the Klingons? I don't think they did enough with the Klingons in this. In this, I, th- I feel like they just sort of were like, "Oh, right, there's there are Klingons." And I mean, in the first reboot movie or the first Kelvin timeline movie, they they were originally going to have a whole arc where Nero is captured by the Klingons, and that's where he loses part of his ear and all of this stuff. And they went ahead and did none of it. You can read all about that in Star Trek Nero, the graphic novel miniseries written by Mike Johnson. Exactly. That is where we do get a much better and more robust explanation of Klingons in the in the Kelvin timeline. So I don't know. I don't really have much to say other than I like the design. I like their kind of, you can't really read their eyes sort of thing. They all kind of have the that kind of look, the, the one commander who's who's chatting with Uhura and decides to kill her. I, I think that that was good. But again, they were just sort of like, oh, right, there's Klingons and, and those are important. So let's put them in too. To quote Red Letter Media, uh, a group of uh, people who who do sort of the Mr. Plinkett reviews, I think they referred to Star Trek 2009 as space adventure film. And I feel like that Into Darkness, because they're trying to add so much, they supercharge the movie into like, I forgot there were Klingons in the movie by the end of the movie. Like, I, I totally was like, what? Oh, right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I don't, I, I, that is ultimately it is. I feel like they could have not had that and met up with John Harrison in a completely different place and it would have been fine. It just felt like Klingons were the red shirts no pun intended, for John Harrison to fight so he could show off his super strength. Yeah, he just had to beat someone up. It sucks that they really use such a rich civilization as a plot device, just a place. It just happened to be a place. And it's cool that, yeah, there is a threat of war. Again, the threat of war is more revealing to me when it comes to Marcus because he actually says in the war with Klingons is inevitable. That guy's hunting for war, much like Dick Cheney. And he is not only ready for war, he's actively rooting for it. He wants a war to happen. That gives another shade of the character. He is the John Foster Dulles slash John Bolton slash Dick Cheney slash whomever else you want character, right? The These warmongers who, who say they're doing things in the interest of the Federation they're a part of or the, the uh, union that they're a part of, when really what they're doing is acting in the interests of of a hegemony of trying to export their crisis into other places and yeah i mean as as you've mentioned many times before and the ferengi know this that war is good for business and a war economy is good for business and and look at the production that's taking place with the with the creation of the uss vengeance or even if you wanted to go into the prime universe and, and the creation of, of ships like the defiant these are antithetical to the precepts of the UFP even more than the breaking of the prime directive that uh, that takes place from time to time. And I think, you know, saying that Admiral Marcus is very much a Dick Cheney character, I would agree. And I think you really see where Admiral Marcus is actually in complete control, much like I think Dick Cheney was during September 11th, right? Dick Cheney was basically the president for that period of time during that horrifying crisis 18 years ago. You really see who was in control, who had the power. And uh, Dick Cheney also has a daughter that is antithetical to his his viewpoints as well, which I think is a neat little comparison to make. We're driving down here to the actual movie walkthrough, and we'll, we'll end here in a little bit. The one thing I wanted to talk to you about on more of a philosophical level is the humanity of Spock. 
in this movie. Uh, one thing I've always noticed, and again, people want to discount this movie because of John Harrison Khan, which I get. Uh, but if you think about it, in The Wrath of Khan, Kirk says, of all the souls I've encountered, Spock was the most human. And in this movie, you see a guy who repays his captain for saving his life by going and telling on him. You see him go from that to become an angry desperate baby who starts beating up on the killer of his of his captain friend i kind of feel like what was said in the wrath of khan which is his soul was the most human actually happens in this movie we we get to see him go from complete a guy who says i never want to feel the feelings that human feel to becoming the most human character in this movie i thought that was so poignant in the movie maybe that's just me romanticizing about that. no not at all i think spock is very well explored in the kelvin timeline in fact i think he's one of the best explored characters for his change right um him in his little petulant smirk when when he denies the Vulcan Science Academy from getting him in in the uh, in the first of the of the Kelvin films and this one of course he's trying to die sort of at the beginning right like he he feels like the only way he can resolve the conflict within himself is through self sacrifice and you feel that a little bit in TMP and the Wrath of Khan but I think it's better articulated if not maybe a little bit overloaded in places in Into Darkness and him being denied his his chance to sacrifice himself i think in some cases where kirk does the sacrificing i almost wonder at times if spock is mad that his friend died but also mad that this actually means a lot more for spock having to stick around and having to reconcile his conflict and so yeah he goes and beats con up because he's like damn it now i have to step up now i can't hide behind the leadership of kirk which is shaky at best because Kirk also has his own fair share of, of insecurities and uncertainties. But uh, I often wondered if Spock's very emotional reaction was him being like, okay, well, the chips are down now. I have to step up and be whatever the heck I am. Okay, we've, uh, we've come down to the end of the movie. Uh, overall thoughts, like I said, this is my second favorite movie in all of the Star Trek movies. It's my first favorite Kelvinter movie. And it's because it's the first Star Trek anything that I saw at the movies. I got to take my mom and dad, who were as kids growing up fans of Star Trek, and I got to show them this movie with my paycheck when I was in college and working as an ad writer. And it was it was a beautiful time because these people who introduced me to Trek, I got they had never heard of the Kelvin Trek. So I got to go see this movie with them and show it to them. And apart from the romanticism of the experience, I just think it's a very underrated movie. And we'll talk more about the actual themes itself. But just the movie itself, final thoughts. I, I really think people should give it a second shot. If you ever find me at STLV or anywhere and you say anything about Into Darkness, I will actively fight you for it because I love this movie so much. Yeah, the movie is a product of its time. And we have to understand that that premise of this movie was stripped immediately from the front pages of newspapers at the time, where we were questioning the the motives of our leaders and started starting to really see their culpability in a lot of the crises that were occurring in that time. And to this day, we still see those things. We can also see how how far we're willing to go to hold on to our values is, is one of the main theme questions that I think we're going to get into. So I would say that, I don't know, not every movie is going to be 1977 Star Wars and it blows our mind or 1998 Saving Private Ryan where everyone's like, holy cow. I mean, it is a movie that is trying to be like other movies like Skyfall, like The Dark Knight, like The Dark Knight Rises. It's not 
completely on its own, but I think that the questions it asks and the way it explores them, if it had a little bit more time, maybe two movies, maybe a series, would have been probably one of the best. But unfortunately, yeah, it is. It does suffer from its its time slot. It's the amount of time it's given. All right, let's get the overall themes of the movie. The Iraq War to me is a big touch point when I think of this movie because Marcus is basically a Dick Cheney type. He's telling everyone, "Oh, we really got to get this guy because he's a lone gunman who killed a bunch of our people." When the truth is, you manufactured this person and you turned him and what he calls his family into whatever you wanted him to do for Section 31. And not only are you ready to put Starfleet aside, you're actually using human pawns to stop this person because you're afraid that he's doing what he's going to do. Just it's it's the WMDs when really what they wanted was the oil all over again, at least when it comes to the Iraq, Iraq war and the Cheney Marcus plot point. What, what do you think of that? Absolutely. This is this is 100% the subterfuge. This is the Gulf of Tonkin. This is September 11th. This is Pearl Harbor. This is all of the, this is the current crisis in Venezuela. Um, this is Salvador Allende and Augusto Pinochet in Chile. This is a hegemony who is trying to assert its power when it feels that power is threatened. And that is when you start seeing that, in our case, it's profit over people. And for them, I think there is a type of profit they get from this as well. Uh, it's not the same kind of material profit that we see here in terms of money. But I mean, Admiral Marcus has a lot to gain here. And when you see these leaders and the way they act, like just recently, John Bolton said that he met with a bunch of former Cuban uh, exiles who were involved in the Bay of Pigs invasion in uh, in the 1960s. He's saying, you know, oh, we have to watch out for the existential threat that Cuba and Venezuela pose to the United States. Like, are you kidding me? Like, are you actually kidding me that, that you think that Cuba and Venezuela pose any kind of threat to your people? Like, come on. And it, it sort of would be the same sort of thing in, in that, like, I think that at that point, they should understand that the whole Nero situation was a one-off. And the the crisis that they have between the Klingons and the Romulans and all the rest really do just come down to power struggles and squabbles between different hegemonies who, who are interested in, in maintaining and holding on to their power. We see that here. We see that in real life, and we currently still see it happening. And divisive element of it, I think, is probably one of the worst things to, to sort of stifle our progress as a, as a people. Like, we currently are, are fighting harder for a pipeline in my province than we are for hospital beds and, and, and smaller class sizes. And some people will say like, oh, well, you know, the pipeline is really important because, you know, we need that money. And it's like, if if that's the case, then maybe Bill Hicks was right, that it's about uh, it's about money, not freedom. You think you're free? Try going somewhere without money. And it's about maintaining status quo, and it's about maintaining these hegemonies that does export a lot of suffering away from the center. When we have these like attacks on uh, on boardrooms and in you know the CIA Section Thirty One headquarters and stuff like that, these minor attacks they pale in comparison to the day to day experience of people in developing countries in places that are currently undergoing economic and political upheaval. And we here think 
that the only way we can support ourselves is by letting people like Admiral Marcus run the show to protect us. They're willing to do evil things in order to give us this sense of security. And when that sense of security is under threat, we unleash them like dogs and we reap. We reap what we sow in a lot of cases. That was a long, long-winded, but I hope that made sense. Uh, at least it did to me. What about yourself? You know, when we talk about Section 31, it's an interesting take. So when I saw this movie, I didn't know what Section 31 was because all I had seen of the Trek of it all by then was the TOS Trek and the first Kelvin movie. So I, I just thought, oh, that's a cool organization. That sounds like an interesting movie idea. Little did I know there was an entire mythology behind it. In this movie, Section 31 is definitely more Hydra than it is... Uh, yeah. Then it is, uh, let's say, a regular, you know, deep state style organization. It's it's more Hydra than it is the Marquis or uh, I forget the name of the Romulan intelligence word. Tal Shiar. Tal Shiar, yes. Because Marcus says we were trying to harness a superior intelligence. And he very, again, very cool tidbit in the movie. Uh, McCoy at one point says, sounds like we have a Superman on board. And that's a direct reference to the TOS episode when we first see Khan's space seed in which, you know, he's referred to as a Superman. And Section 31 going out of its way to harness ways to find intelligence, that definitely intrigued me more than, you know, it, it should have had I known what... Section 31 was when it came to DS9 and stuff. But yeah, I think they were trying to hide under the veneer of using a superhuman to not directly say, oh, we're talking about the US government and the Iraq war. It's it's a, I don't know, man. The, what, what did you think of Section 31 in this? And so if you had to compare it, what would you compare it? I, I would compare them to the CIA. 100% straight line. For instance, look at, looking at uh, Guatemala in the late 1950s and early 1960s, right? You've got Arbenz taking over, and he's really just pushing social democratic reforms. But because it's not acting in the interests of the United Fruit Company, which, again, is being helped by by the American army and secret service and all that sort of stuff. He is, he is basically bullied into exile and dies a, like a miserable death. And then, then these paramilitary groups move through Guatemala, killing thousands of people and saying they only kill like 50. Right. But, but we now know that basically they, they shot them and put them in, like just put their bodies in the ocean and that was it. And so this is what these secretive extra governmental organizations have time and again been willing to do to maintain a level of hegemony. And so ultimately what I'm seeing, and this this goes from the prime universe when we first see them in TOS to when they're retconned into Enterprise, I think very effectively, and their, their appearance in Discovery especially, this is why Section 31 has to go. They have to go. Because they really do represent the true existential threat to the Federation. And I think that, that these secretive organizations, extra-governmental organizations, like the CIA, like the former KGB, like the Mossad, all of these groups are what ultimately destroy the civilizations that they think they're protecting because they let power corrupt absolutely. Ultimately, if the United Federation of Planets actually wants to be worth anything, they need to get rid of 
and and completely exterminate Section 31. And Into Darkness does a really good job of articulating that point to me. In the movie too, and we'll get off the Section 31 bandwagon, I promise. In the movie too, uh, Kirk and the shuttle crew that lands on Kronos, they almost do a very Section 31 thing. They Even before getting on there, they change their clothes into civilian clothes. And they say, oh no, this is because we don't want a Starfleet and a Klingon war. But the truth is, they they know what they're doing is wrong. And even though they're here to capture, they know on some level, it's just not right. I would argue that's more like misplaced diplomacy. But I see where you're getting at. I mean, if, it would have been a lot easier had they actually down in their Starfleet garb and landed there and caught or trashed John Harrison. And then, I mean, I wouldn't say the, the Klingon would start shooting at them and try to kill them all. There would at least be a little more understanding than when they saw just civil, people dressed in civil attire just come going down and speaking Klingon. You know, it just, had that been, a, the mission itself, had it been a little more peaceful, and I don't know if that's the right way to put it, but had it been a little more Starfleet-like, I bet the Klingons would have understood, but it's just the whole thing is is such a fishy, and it's they they didn't listen to them either way clearly, and that's why John Han had to step in. I think also John Harrison knew what he was doing by hiding on Konos, right? Like he goes, oh, okay, yeah, I'm going to go to a place that's hostile to the group that I'm trying to fight right now because I know that they're not going to be able to extradite me from from here. So I think again, maybe what the Federation should be thinking about doing is how does it wage peace rather than wage war, and as it has been abundantly proven in the the uh, TOS movies afterward, the Klingons had an appetite for peace, and they and yes, it took it took a, a threat of of their planet being destroyed for that to happen. But I don't necessarily think it was completely out of the question even before that. And I would say that that again, the TNG Federation does a, a much better job of waging that peace and maintaining those peaceful relationships, right? Like, I mean, Darmok is a perfect example where I mean. I'm, the easiest way to have settled that problem was to just blow them all up because we can't understand them. We don't know what they're talking about. And they get frustrated and hostile really, really quick. The Klingons are really good at doing that too. And so I think if the Federation was actually trying to actively seek peace and it got rid of its Admiral Marcuses and its Section 31s, it would have made it so much easier to do that. I mean, I think about, you know, um, Benedict Cumberbatch plays Julian Assange in a completely different movie. Julian Assange has just been arrested by the Ecuadorian, um, or yeah, he was arrested um, when he left the Ecuadorian embassy or was taken out because they're no longer saving him anymore. Look at how long that took. Honestly, if the whole Iraq crisis was dealt with in a much more humanitarian way and wasn't just posturing for economic gain, none of this would have happened. If the United States was actually pushing for a truthfully peaceful alternative, it wouldn't have had to spend the last almost decade trying to bully uh, an, a smaller country into giving up a person who was really just blowing a whistle on a war crime. So yeah, I think you're absolutely right in the sense that if they would have come down in peace, if they would have come down in the the spirit of wanting to communicate a, a situation, the Klingons probably would have listened. But I, I would say that they had set up a situation where that was practically impossible anyways. And the Klingons' decision to try to kill them anyway, I don't think would have been very different. Now we come to at least my final point of discussion for this movie, and that is John Harrison, the character itself. And if, if you, uh, our dear listener... Put the idea aside that this is Khan and you don't think about that for a second. 
John Harrison as a character is very fascinating. Unlike the Superman aspect of the original movies and episodes, here he's Frankenstein's monster. He was created and arisen by an organization to quote-unquote get superior intelligence. And then he's now trying to be killed because they want to kill their own people because they realize they made a mistake by resurrecting these 300-year-old people. I mean, what do you expect would happen if you if you did try to raise someone who was 300 years old and was known for their physical and moral and mental superiority? Just It's just the whole thing was a mess from the start. And it's it, it, it was such a bad idea. And leave it to Admiral Marcus to go from bad to worse when it came to the con of it all. And my, my biggest argument is people tend to not look at the really cool Frankenstein's monster aspect of this. And this is a monster that Starfleet created. It's important to remember that. This organization that immediately abandons the two people who tried to save a civilization by making their ship visible is completely willing to forgive a guy who, who lets an entire ship be destroyed for one person. If that is where the bureaucracy of the, civil, of the organization is, it definitely needs a hard look and and uh, maybe a little bit of a go back to the drawing board aspect because you you when something's done right uh, and even if it's a wrong action done for the right as in the beginning of the movie there is no second look but for a character like Marcus he's being given everything he wants in spite of him trying to kill people to undo his own mistakes it's it's just the whole thing is such a big mess. It, it is really exactly what the United States and other countries like them have done in the past by propping up brutal dictators for their own interests and then that blowing up right in their face. I mean, they trained they trained Al-Qaeda against the, to fight against the Russians and then eventually it spins on them, right? They prop up um, Augusto Pinochet in Chile in the 1970s to topple a to topple a, a democratically elected social democrat who, like, on the off chance might trade with the uh, the Soviet Union. They, they have to oust him. And so they put a guy with ex-Nazis on his senior staff to to run the show, and, and then they're blown away by the amount of human rights atrocities that he commits shortly after that. I feel like, in this case, it is a much more of a Frankenstein's monster thing, like you say, because I feel way more sympathetic to John Harrison Khan than I did to Ricardo Montalban's Khan. Um, Ricardo Montalban's Khan was the bad guy of bad guys, right? He was full of swagger and bravado, and his whole epic was swashbuckling. From Space Seed to the Wrath of Khan, he is very much convinced of his own greatness. And it has a lot to do with the fact that his people are with him. And in this case, Khan is is trying to get revenge for the treatment of his, his followers. But again, he was a megalomaniacal, brutal dictator of planet Earth in Star Trek canon, and they use him as a weapon. And it's still like, hmm, that's interesting because, you know, these these sorts of things take place and are taking place in the sense of using someone who is brutal to do your dirty work for you. And I think that is originally what Admiral Marcus wanted to happen, but unfortunately it didn't because he was spinning too many too many plates to keep his hegemony up and running. And I think that, again, is something that we're seeing and have seen in real history, especially during the Cold War and now in the quote-unquote war on terror that has taken place. I mean, even the war on drugs, you see that sort of stuff happening in the uh, 
late 1980s, early 1990s, the same kind of propping up horrible, horrible leaders in and around the world to maintain and keep your interests um, up and running. So, yeah, you're right. It is a Frankenstein's monster thing. And I do think that Khan is a little more sympathetic this time around, but he's still not without the idea that when you play with fire like this, you're going to get burnt. All in all, I think it was a good take on Khan. It was a good way to turn the tide on this character we knew and show how a character like Khan could have come from our own doing and our own noble intentions. But really, that's all. I think that's all we have to say. If, if we, I'm sure I could keep going all day, but uh, we are doing this new thing on Polytrex <laughs> where we actually respect the listener's time and, con- and we're hoping for some consistency. And so we're trying to do our best to keep it short. Uh, I, and with that, do you have anything else you want to add? No, other than thanks for bringing this this up. I really enjoyed my rewatch of Into Darkness. I watched it about um, about three days ago now, thinking, no, not even three days ago. I watched it like a day and a half ago, and uh, it was good. I, I enjoyed watching it. I mean, anytime I get to watch Star Trek is a good day, and I, I appreciate getting to do this. And so for those of you listening out there, give Into Darkness another listen and think about the time frame in which it was uh, made, maybe some of our arguments. And as usual, I mean, if you want to keep that discussion going on Twitter, uh, especially, we will more than happily engage. You can do that with us on Twitter on at Polytrex. That's P-O-L-I-T-R-E-K-S. Uh, that's the same name on Facebook. You can also leave us a voicemail on the Tricorder Transmissions website. That's the tricordertransmissions.com. You know how it's spelled. You've been there before. Stop it. Uh, you can find me on at gutter underscore hero. You can find Barry on B-J-O-R-N-D-F-J-O-R-D. Did I get that right, Barry? You absolutely did, sir. Uh, with that, you know, this is what we do on Polytrex. We really don't know what we should do. To quote Kirk, we know only what we can do. And what we can do is keep making Polytrex out of all the Trek there is in the world. So, until next time, live long and prosper. And onward to Star Side. Star Side.